0: Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show.
1: Today I'm speaking with Alex Morris. He's the author of the Science of Hitting Substack. He's very much a Buffett style investor. He currently runs a very concentrated portfolio of 12 stocks. He holds on the stocks for the long haul to capture the returns from the business. Um, a noteworthy purchase of his is his purchase of Microsoft, which was an absolute home run that he bought back in 2011 and still holds to this day. His Substack features analysis of his holdings and potential investments, and he offers total transparency into his portfolio, detailing his position sizing and trading activity. Welcome to the podcast, Alex.
0: Thanks for having me. Very kind introduction. And in case of- Probably goes without saying, but there was a fair amount of luck involved with that Microsoft investment. So nice to get lucky sometimes. So how would you
1: say that you've developed your investing philosophy?
0: Yeah. Well, I very much come from the Buffett and Munger pool of thought. And also Phil Fisher and Peter Lynch are big influences as well. And Chuck Aukary and others who, you know, in my mind, kind of the underlying theme of those investors as I see it is, you know, one stocks as businesses, obviously to for some of those names at least surely a long-term and more concentrated approach versus what's kind of conventional wisdom mm-hmm. you know and then speaking of Microsoft it's you know there's there's certain investments that have also kind of informed some of those conclusions in, in terms of how I've kind of involved as an investor so it's yeah it's very long-term focused a certain level of comfort with with concentration and leaving positions untouched for significant periods of time and really kind of, you know, earning the results of the business as opposed to what I view as a lot more of just trading and, and trying to compete on the short term, which I assume would be very difficult against some of those competitors who may have access to better data or things like that, that just make the call for an individual.
1: Were you ever not a Buffett-style investor? Did you try any other things out before you've gravitated to that approach? Or were you an immediate convert?
0: Yeah, I think it kind of it kind of hit me immediately. I got into this in, back when I was in undergraduate school in college. It always just kind of made sense to me, the general ideas of value investing. And then, you know, the actual application of that has surely evolved. I think a notable example was, I think it was in 2018, I believe, when effectively swapped out Pepsi in my portfolio for what was Facebook and is now Meta. I think that was an interesting change for me in terms of a willingness to be a little bit more open to risk of loss as opposed to certainty as the primary driver. But also, you know, with potential reflection and investment like that of the upside potential over a longer period of time. Obviously, you know, Pepsi is at a size where it has certain caps on how quickly it will grow and things like that. In my mind, didn't really apply to Facebook at that time, but it also had obviously different, you know, risk characteristics as well. So kind of just finding my own path and what made sense to me maybe led me to deviate slightly from where they're at today. But yeah, it's just been kind of an an evolution of, learning from people who actually know what they were doing, and then through my own trial and error, figuring out what kind of made the most sense. That makes sense. And why do you prefer longer holding periods?
1: So you've held Microsoft, for instance, since 2011. So what drives that preference
0: for longer-term holding periods? You know, there's a certain component of it where obviously from a tax perspective, there can be significant advantages to the extent that you're correct on the business. It's funny. I actually saw that in my former life at an investment advisor where people would have long-term holdings and things with very low cost basis. And the fact that they had a low cost basis is what really drove the decision. And it's funny to think that the avoidance of tax to some extent in certain situations led to their ability to keep owning really great businesses that produce fantastic returns over time. It's a funny kind of outcome from seemingly unrelated input. But yeah, so I always felt that it seemed like a somewhat less competitive place to play. It seemed like the competitive playing field was more balanced versus, you know, competing against stuff like credit card data or latent inside information, whatever it may be on the shorter term trading end of the spectrum. And then yeah, I really think also a big thing for me, and it kind of speaks to the concentration as well, is building real conviction in businesses and management teams and something that for me really just takes time. And it's not something I can always accumulate from studying a business for a couple of weeks. So holding positions for long periods of time and kind of pattern recognition of, hey, this kind of rhymes with what was happening in 2017, 2018. That's helped me as well in terms of just being a little bit more level headed than I probably would be otherwise.
1: Yeah, I have a similar philosophy. I do think that when you're playing a very short term game, like say you're playing a game that's days or weeks, you're Playing against Jim Simons, and that's probably a game that we can't win. And then over the say a year or two, you're competing against some of the elite hedge funds and things like that. But over the long term, you're going to, if you assuming you paid a reasonable price, you'll capture the actual returns from that business. And to me, that's a game that can be that's winnable.
0: Yes, that certainly sounds better than the alternative
1: that you just. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I wouldn't want to compete against Jim Simons. (laughs) No, I think I'm good. How do you think about position sizing? So you own 12 stocks but they're all in kind of different percentages of your overall portfolio and some positions are much larger than others. So how do you think about
0: how you're sizing those positions? Yeah, my honest answer at this point would be still poorly. You know, it's more <laughs> of an art than a science. I I think there's only so much Quantification or, or mathematical analysis that can kind of drive that outcome. I've come to believe more and more as I thought about it a lot and don't come to much better answers than what I have today. You know, some of it is again, like the positions that are the largest in my case are the ones that I've been in the portfolio, generally speaking, for long periods of time. So it speaks to that conviction in the business and the management team and kind of accumulated confidence and trust. So that's certainly part of it. You know, there is some reflection of certain positions that have have probably wider ranges of outcomes or potential outcomes um, that would be reflected to some extent in position sizing. And then I really think about kind of the overall diversification of the portfolio in terms of, you know, kind of like industry or economic characteristics underlying each of those businesses. So again, I really come from the Munger sort of mindset of if you find three or four businesses that are, you know, somewhat diversified to each other, that's sufficient diversification and that's kind of how
1: I think about it. So you take that kind of "what are the flowers, trim the weeds" approach—that Peter Lynch
0: approach. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously always you know some consideration for relative opportunity costs, but I do try to—and this is partly from personal experience—yeah, not chase things down as they move lower and lower without real signs of obviously business results uh, supporting that decision. Because I've I've got caught in value traps in the past, and I think I'm better yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. And I, I've learned a lot from people like, you know, John Hampton at Bronte Capital, just simple ideas like, you know, giving yourself a certain percentage of the portfolio that you're allowed to allocate to something and putting even simplistic time constraints on it. Hey, I can't make another move for six months. Simple things like that get you away from what I struggled with early on, which is this idea of, you know, hey, it's down another 10%. I want to buy more now. It's down another 10% the week after that. I want to keep buying more. That has not worked for me. So I mm-hmm. kind of put rules in place to kind of limit that activity.
1: Yeah. And there's I think it's good to have some rules in place about how long you're going to hold a stock or how long you're going to wait for some activity. Guy Spirit, he has a rule where he doesn't do anything for five years. That's probably more extreme, but I think it's kind of a step in the right direction where you have some clearly set rules ahead of time about how you're going to handle the stock, whether
0: you're going to put more in, when you're going to sell it. You have to give the idea time to work out. Yeah. And again, it gets back to the investment horizon as well, right? I think back Mm -hmm. on, on Microsoft's a good example. At the time when I was buying it, originally, it was probably at, you know, whatever, 26 bucks or something like that. And at the time, it seemed like a very significant difference whether or not I was buying at 26 or 24 or 28. And I just think you have to constantly remind yourself to the extent that you operate with this type of framework. You know, I'm not trying to Buy at the bottom tick necessarily. I want to be sure that I'm right about this business and that the valuation is reasonable, and then I want a position size that is, you know, reasonable given the underlying characteristics of this investment. And the more that I put my mind in in that area, I feel less need to kind of chase the short term swings in either direction. Mm-hmm. So that's uh that's a good opportunity. Let's talk
1: about Microsoft. So you bought it back in 2011. Microsoft was a very cheap stock back then. I think it was down to like a 10 P or something like that. Why did you buy it? And then my other question would be why didn't you sell it? I would suspect a lot of value guys would have bought it at the 10 PE, probably sold in like 2014, 2015 when they got their pop and it was up to like a 20 P. So why'd you buy it? And what gave you the conviction
0: to hold? Yeah. The original purchase was basically exactly that. It was this is a cheap stock on you know traditional valuation metrics. I'm certainly going to have hindsight bias in some of the things I'm saying here. But as I looked at franchises like Windows and especially Office, I felt very good about what their long-term future was likely to look like. And I believe some of the arguments made about things like the death of the PC or competitive threats from you know, Google's competing Office productivity suite, I just felt that they didn't really pass muster. But it was very much a traditional, you know, hey, this is a very low-key value investor way of thinking. Which I think is very logical, where it somewhat led to evolution, as you pointed out, is you get to the 2014, 2015, 2016 period. They go through a very noisy C suite transition. Sasha Nadella is eventually named CEO. Mm-hmm. In, I believe it was late 14 or early 15, they put out these commercial cloud targets. And you know, for me, it was a point where I started to, I think, Appreciate more so where this business could go, building on some of those, you know, underlying strengths that kind of led to the investment in the first place. And I can distinctly remember reading a blog post from someone who had a business that was acquired by Microsoft around the time that Nadell was hired. Mm-hmm. The narrative in the financial press was very much: "This is an insider. This company is not going to be able to change. It, it needs to change in certain ways." And the perspective that I got from his blog post was that Sasha Nadell is very different than it painted kind of in the media, and that he was probably the exact right person for this role. So, you know, as we go through that period to your point, 2015-2016, you the stock certainly looks expensive relative to the multiple that marked the Mr. Market previously and it deemed appropriate. I'd have to go back and look for specifics, but there were periods through there where, where I trimmed and it was fit my traditional framework, quite right, right? You buy at 10 PE, you sell at 15 or 20 your taxes take your gains move on to the next one and mm-hmm. you know as i watched the business results over time i started to think more and more that this is the exact kind of business and the exact kind of management team that i want to partner with for the long term you still get into this question of okay well what's you know air quotes fair trade at a couple turns on a pe multiple higher than the market should it be two times higher on the pe multiple you know these are they're difficult questions but the conclusion i reached then, which is largely the same now is my belief was that this business deserved significant premium to all oh, your average company and that was reflective of not only the business and then the growth opportunities and things like cloud but it was reflective of a really great management team that was going to you know be responsible for making strategic decisions and allocating capital hopefully for very very long periods of time yeah i think that marks a significant kind of development in my thinking as investor. And I probably misunderstood some of the Buffett quotes, or at least the ways that he meant them in terms of you know things like a business that a ham sandwich could run, that kind of idea. Yeah. I, we all misunderstood, misunderstand <laughs> Buffett. And then years later
1: realized, now I get what he was talking about. That happens to everybody, I think. <laughs> yeah.
0: And you look at... I mean, Berkshire is the perfect example, right? It's, it's a business that from where he started, obviously had a very uh, shaky future to say the least. And it mm-hmm. was management and capital allocation that had that became hugely important over time and what drove the business to where it is today. So I started to make that a more meaningful part of my kind of thought process and, and investment process. And so yeah, it's uh crazy to think it's been 12 years now. <laughs> time flies. But you know, it's really been thinking about where the business could go and how management can make decisions that would position it for a bright future. And, and that's certainly much more evident today than it was five or Early 10 years ago.
1: Cool. So, looking back at Microsoft, so Microsoft went through this period of time in the 2000s where in 2000, it was super expensive. And then basically the multiple collapsed over the next 10 years. I've always Mm -hmm. kind of thought that Microsoft was never really broken as a business, the stock price just drove the narrative. What do you think about that? Do you think that Microsoft under Bomber was actually not executing, or do you think it was just kind of a made up narrative to go along with the stock? falling apart?
0: I think it's probably both. I mm-hmm. think there's certainly a truth to, you know, the death of the PC narrative. There was a kernel there that that is somewhat evident today, right? In terms of the computing form factors that were going to become, you know, more important to people and, and really drive their compute. I think that's clearly evident from, you know, a consumer perspective. You know, as it spelled out pretty clearly in Nadella's book, which didn't come out until 2018, I believe. But he pretty clearly spells out the risk that they faced in server and tools and, and then what became kind of the cloud businesses in terms of having the ability to get the internal culture to kind of shift to what needed to be the new priorities and the new focus. So I think that was probably a very real you know, threat to the business over the long-term in that it, 20, 2010, 2012 period, where if they, if they didn't recognize what they were seeing from AWS and kind of the evolution of these businesses, they might've missed the boat completely. So I think almost always there's a mix of, to your point, like just price driving narrative versus the actual underlying issues in the business, and I, I think in this case it's probably a good good mix of the two. Also, you know, somewhat, I think somewhat questionable decision makings on M and A would probably be also noteworthy. I think Nokia closed as Nadella was becoming CEO, and I think it was pretty clear from from early on that was of the view that this probably wasn't the direction to go. So. You know things like that. Okay, so that's your big
1: investing home run. So you've also written about some of the misses that you had, which we've all had. Some value traps you've bought. So you wrote about IBM and JC So
0: what did you learn from those two investments? Well, IBM's still a hard one for me because I think certainly been over five years of it. Maybe getting close to 10 years since I invested in IBM, <laughs> and I still don't entirely understand what they do. I understand it at a very high level, but I, given my investment in Microsoft, I, in terms of the difference in the report of financials, it was somewhat evident that customers were more in line with Microsoft's view of the future than IBM's. And that's really been one big learning from these things is, is thinking about kind of... You know revenue growth would be a metric, obviously, but just mind share and engagement share and thinking about if consumers are moving away from companies kind of core competency and their the market is kind of evolving, that being a very significant red flag, JCPenney obviously fits that bill as well, where it was pretty obvious well before I made the investment that JCPenney was becoming less relevant to consumers as it related to, you know, Amazon and Costco and you know, even going further back, even relative to Walmart, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of basic apparel needs. So that's been a big learning along the way. You know, JCPenney was also one where I think I let myself get a little bit too enamored by the the investment case presented by Bill Ackman, a very mm-hmm. smart and knowledgeable investor, but I I probably bought into his view of what the thesis was a little too much as a as opposed to truly doing. The work myself or really having a conviction on the thesis myself. And you know, that was kind of a lesson as well, which I think is an important one is, you know, as we see 13 Fs every quarter, XYZ smart investor bought, you know, this stock and XYZ smart investor sold this stock and you're trying to justify it relative to what they're doing. And you just kind of have to push that. It's certainly worth thinking about, especially to the extent that they give commentary explaining their thoughts, but I think you kind of have to make your own decisions. Yeah, I think that's a common thing that we all
1: do too. You'll see a really smart investor go along in something, and
0: you, they're not always right. They're not
1: perfect. They definitely make their own share of mistakes. Like I, I know I, I bought things in the past. Like I think I was I was long Micron at one point because Monish Bry was long it. I think we've all done some things like that. Yeah, but they're not infallible. Even Buffett. Buffett was long IBM too. So
0: yeah, yeah. Those are so IBM and and Kraft Heinz is another one I had. Those are. You know, two names that are uh, in the bucket universe. And yeah, I, I think in, you know, IBM or sorry, Kraft Heinz, I think where I really made a mistake on that one was I had an interest in Heinz beforehand and then the deal happened and I looked at the mix of business and I realized quickly, and I let myself get away from making the decision, but I realized fairly quickly that the condiment side of the business, which was the side that I liked and, and thought would remain somewhat differentiated, had become a really small part of the overall pie. And mm-hmm. the real big pieces were, you know, lunch meats and, and processed meats and cheeses and things like that. And, you know, I saw as someone who would shop at Aldi or Costco or Whole Foods that the relevance of their brands in those retailers, which were the retailers that were and are growing, their relevance there was being significantly cut at from private label on one end and more like niche organic brands, things like that on the other end. and. The right decision at that point would have been to act sooner rather than later. Yeah, on the surface,
1: it sounds great because you're talking about Heinz ketchup and what's more, you know, what's better than Heinz ketchup? You're not going to go out and buy Hunts or something. (laughs) It's not really (laughs) keeping the lights on the decision between Heinz and Hunts. So, I mean, I completely agree. Heinz sounds like a great brand. But then when you add the leverage and you add all of the other things that they had into it, yeah, it definitely
0: was a miss. Yeah, I can't remember what year it was. They had, there was one point where, Costco famously, I believe it was planters, they essentially kicked them out of their stores and said, we can just do, we can do a Kirkland private label brand unless you guys are able to come in at a, you know, more competitive price point. And they just said we don't need you anymore. It was really a decision that was, in my mind, indicative of of kind of where retail to a certain extent was going. Kirkland becoming a brand that probably more relevant to a lot of young consumers than than Kraft may even be.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kirkland's an incredible brand. Like I know whenever you buy a Kirkland product at Costco, it's always better than whatever, you know, the name brand alternative is. It's always amazing. They're actually their nuts <laughs> are are way better. Like I I buy them. They're way better than the planters brand. So yeah, I'm in agreement with that. Kirkland is a formidable brand. And it was tough to see probably around 2010 how big it was going to become and how important it was going to become. I always assumed too, like you, that those staple household brands would never go away. But yeah, Kirkland's done a pretty good job at displacing them.
0: Yeah, even in, even in 2016, 2017, 2018, I think it became, to your point, maybe 10 plus years ago, it was pretty hard to see this. I think, look back five years or more recent than that, mm-hmm. it started to become and it becomes somewhat evident in these companies' financial results. And again, you know, comp it to Costco that's reporting mid-single-digit comps and 10% sales growth, whatever the numbers are. It just it started to become more clear that these companies were losing share and a very significant problem and a red flag that's certainly become a much more meaningful part of my process. Definitely. So kind of back to your
1: your overall portfolio philosophy. So you have only twelve positions, but when I look at them, I notice that they're very well diversified among different industries and styles. like you have, some fast growers in there. You've got some wide moat companies, you've got some financials. So is this by design or is this just kind of how it happens as the opportunities
0: pop up? I think it's a bit of both. There's certainly some that is by design and a comfort with kind of the diversification across these you know different industries and kind of economic characteristics, You know, but also opportunity costs drive a lot of the decision-making as well. But I do tend to think about things... You know for example, the extent I'm looking at Costco or or Tractor Supply or another retailer. For me, it just kind of naturally makes sense to have the first filter of opportunity cost be how does this compare to to DG or you know a retailer in the portfolio that the decision making becomes a bit clearer than trying to comp Tractor Supply to to Microsoft or to Netflix. So that's kind of where my head starts. Then obviously, I also consider just the you know the broader kind of opportunity costs on those things, but. I do like a certain level of diversification in light of concentration of in individual.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I also noticed that many of your positions are large caps. So personally, when I buy stocks, I tend to focus more on the mid cap and the large cap universes as well, because I think the businesses are better. And I think I'm more com- if I'm going to run a concentrated portfolio, I want to own better, modier businesses. So is that your thinking behind owning large caps? Or are you also open to some smaller cap
0: opportunities yeah that's that's where i've found the businesses that i really feel confident over the long term you know some of it's just an accident history having you know it's it feels weird to say this after 15 years or so being an investor but still really getting my legs under me over the last five to ten years and you know working in the finance industry as an equities analyst i you know as a result of the needs of the firm really had to focus on all the large cap space and that's where all my time and attention went to and, you know, I've, I've tried to make more of a push to to learn more about some of these smaller businesses. But up to this point, they haven't really featured in the portfolio in a major way. Yeah. It's, it's really funny to think about doing something for 15 years and being like, okay, now I'm ready to actually start doing this. But <laughs> that's how it feels at times with investing. You're always learning, right?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Like I've gone through a similar path. You're constantly learning new things. And there's definitely, you also have to develop your own style. I mean, there's no book out there. Like, When I first started, I was looking for the book that would tell me, this is how you do
0: it. And that doesn't really exist. You kind
1: of have to try it yourself, learn some different philosophies, and then you're going to learn over time.
0: I think that's been one of the most interesting things for me to kind of figure out for myself over the last five years or so is that exact point about having your own style and your own game that you're playing. And and I think about it in terms of a lot of discussions you see about people kind of arguing about stocks. And it's, it's often that they don't even have the same framework for how to think about investing. They may have different styles. They may have different thoughts on how to size the position. There's all these components that go unspoken, but they're they're hugely important in terms of discussion that's being had. And I think when you step back and start to think about things that way, you can appreciate more and more how even if someone has a different conclusion from you on a a stock or a business, it, it may actually be relevant given a different framework that they approach things from yeah absolutely and
1: I mean people also have different risk tolerances different time horizons so you know if you're twenty five years old and you're investing for like forty years from now, you'll probably have a radically different philosophy than someone who's you know sixty and is trying to prepare for retirement so yeah I, I think people have people on Twitter like I mean people like to argue on Twitter about everything, but uh yeah it, it always is funny when people of different styles arguing with each other and they they don't have the same framework. They don't have the same time horizon. They don't have the same risk tolerance. Everybody's got to kind of do their own thing.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So another thing I wanted to talk to you about was some of your actual uh, positions. So one real interesting position you have that I like is uh, that I, I'm not long, but I'm interested in it, Spotify. So one of my great investing regrets is I was a Netflix super user since like 2003 i was getting the dvds wow i started streaming in 07 i loved it i never bought the stock because i had buffett and graham talking in the mic <laughs> how speculative it was and i wish i got long it similarly i've been using spotify since about 2015 and i've been a premium user the whole time and i love the service so I'm worried Spotify is going to become my next big investing regret. So tell me case for Spotify.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think Netflix is an interesting way to frame it. I think there are certainly a lot of similarities between these two businesses and also some pretty notable differences. And just bringing it back to the prior discussion about engagement and mind share, and thinking about businesses in that way, You know, as, like yourself, I kind of scoffed at Netflix back in the day and that, you know, how can the, this thing's not worth twenty? How is this worth twenty-five billion dollars, whatever the number was? And you know, fast forward five to ten years, whatever it is, and find myself long at a number that's quite a bit higher than twenty-five billion. So I really think to to understand Spotify or where you think it may go over time, I think it is very important to look at something like like Netflix and think about you know kind of what happened to that business and what happened as they scaled and what are their kind of relative competitive advantages versus others in the space and And truly thinking through all that, you know, Spotify is much earlier in terms of proving out that it's an actual business. Mm -hmm. You have this question of negotiating power with labels, which Spotify's had a few interesting uh, scuffles over time with smaller labels, Mm -hmm. regional labels, but they've had scuffles here and there. You know, I think some of the commentary industry as of late has been probably more constructive than I personally would have believed even 12 or 18 months ago. And you know the reality is this business has been around for the price points in this business for kind of a base plan have been unchanged for about a decade if not more. And as you look to their ARPU globally, you're looking at something on the premium plan that's less than five dollars a month. So I personally think it's pretty clear that there's going to be pricing power here over time, especially as this has moved from a music streaming service to a broader audio streaming service, and as they've invested in the tools to, you know, maybe make your experience a little bit more enjoyable in terms of recommendations and playlists and the like. So, you know, part of the question will be as those ARPUs move higher and directly benefit the labels in a very significant way, is, is there an opportunity to rework some of the kind of the, the relative power of the two parties? And that can either happen directly in the form of kind of the payout rates to the labels or... As we've already seen with Spotify, it can happen somewhat indirectly with kind of their marketplace advertising tool, which really highlights the platform, but also their ability to, to drive engagement and listening with certain artists. And I see that as kind of a very clear win for, for Spotify as well as the artist and the listener. The labels mm-hmm. part in that is a little bit less clear depending on how they would think about that whole thing. If they're just managing a bucket of artists, the one doing better. To the detriment of another would, you know, just maybe be a wash. So there's a lot of things to think through there. The company certainly is an interesting position with over 500 million monthly active users and and over 200 million paid subscribers. So I think it's one of those businesses where, on both sides, bullish or bearish, it's a name where you probably don't want to stick to uh, static views that that you formed two or three years ago. There's a lot of change happening. And I think there could be announcements in the next year or so that would maybe suggest this business is on the path to becoming much more of a real business than it kind of is today in terms of the P&L. How many active users did you say they have? They have over 500 million monthly active users. Really? Wow. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more in than past, I imagined. In the past year, they've added more than 250,000 net monthly active users per day, which is... An astounding number. (laughs) That's incredible.
1: Yeah. Do you think that there's any threat that they could lose some of the rights that they have? So, I mean, when I go on Spotify, they have pretty much any song I'm looking for. Do you think that there's any threat? Like you mentioned some scuffles that they've had with smaller labels. Do you think there's any threat that they could start to lose some
0: of that or lose ground to a competitor? I think it cuts both ways. you know. So for example, one of the small labels I spoke about, and I'm not intimately familiar with this because I'm I'm not in the market and I'm not well-versed on it, but Mm -hmm. there's reports of them having a negotiation slash fight with Z Music, which is a large label in India. And some Mm -hmm. of the articles I've seen have said, the top song in India on Spotify before this fight began was from this label. And I think it said 20 of the top 200 songs in the market were from this label. And for over a month now, those songs have not been available on the platform because they've had this tussle with one with each other. And you know, it's a it's not as big as the equivalent decision for UMG or WMG, the, the massive labels. But yeah. I wouldn't say that's an inconsequential decision either in terms of their you know, place in in India. So you know, I think you're seeing them throw their weight around a little bit more. And if you look at kind of the the drivers for the industry as a whole or the record labels individually. Spotify and the other distributors are a very important part of these companies' businesses. And on the plus side, as I was noting a moment ago, these price increases are potentially very beneficial for the labels. And Spotify knows that and think they are approaching this decision from the perspective of if we're going to give you a nice jolt to your business for, you know, on a more regular cadence than obviously has been the case over the past 10 years, how should we think about the economic benefit that each party receives? Yeah, and they seem to have
1: really grown their catalog over the years. Like I remember when I first started, I couldn't get ACDC or Prince. I could get both of them. So that was nice when they were both added to the platform. So they do seem to be executing well there. And I have tried Apple Music, and I have to say that the experience on Spotify is much better. I love that Spotify Discover Weekly playlist where I'm constantly finding new music I never I've never heard before, which is always nice. So yeah, they seem to they seem to really have it together.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm working on. I published a Microsoft update today, and I have Spotify update coming on Thursday. And as, as I'm working through the conclusion on the Spotify post, I, I say something along the lines of the conclusion that the stock has been all over the map for the past two years or so, and you know I think that's probably rational, largely in terms mm-hmm. of speaking to our earlier discussion on kind of uncertainty and position sizing, and the like you need to go into an investment like this with a kind of clear understanding of what you're getting yourself into. And I think some of that comes from doing it personally, as opposed to reading it from prior investors. So at least that's certainly been the case for me.
1: Yeah, I noticed it's one of your smaller positions. So I would assume that you're doing that because you're looking at it as a more speculative, volatile position. And that's why it's a
0: smaller size. Yeah, I came out of the gates on it too aggressive in hindsight and not as a comment in terms of what the stock has done. I just think when I using the kind of similar Netflix framework, which again, there's certain parts of this that are very, very different. But mm-hmm. it was at a stage in the in the life cycle that didn't warrant the level. I mean, I didn't go crazy on it, but I think it should have been closer to kind of my minimum position sizing as opposed to, to where I put it at out of the gates. And again, some of this is, I think, firsthand experience and, and living through those stock price swings and going, you know, I may be confident on where this is going to be in a decade, but how does that influence my position sizing today versus the changes I can make 6, 12, 24 months from now. You don't have to get it all in there right now. You can, if you're going to own it for 10 years. You can think about how to position size it over the course of those 10 years. So that's been a helpful thing to kind of live through and think about.
1: Yeah, that's a good framework.
0: Another stock that
1: I thought was pretty interesting that you own is Dollar General. So Dollar General, I mean, it's great, I think it's a great business. Their advantage seems to be that they go to these more rural areas where there's not like a Walmart that's nearby. And then they become a pretty key aspect of that community of where you can go to quickly buy goods that you need. And they also seem to maximize items in the store that have the highest profitability. They're very careful about what they're actually selling in there. And they've been growing store count at a very impressive rate over the years. So how did you become an investor in Dollar General? What attracted you to it? And and how are you thinking about that position today?
0: Well, you framed it very well. I think part of my learning was having gone on road trips and things like that and driving through the country and and really appreciating where their stores are located and what the value proposition is as a consumer and, and thinking about their price points, et cetera. There was a famous line from a former CEO. He said, we went where they ain't to mm-hmm. Walmart, this idea of finding these pockets throughout the country where you can put a small box store and you know as a consumer even if the prices are five percent higher, let's say on a unit basis, you have a decision of do I want to drive 15 minutes and park in a massive parking lot to walk through the store or do I want to spend five percent more in order to have the convenience of you know a store that's five minutes from my house. And I think yeah. they've clearly shown an ability to do that throughout many pockets in the country. It's a, I've followed retailers for a good amount of time now. And I've really found comfort in some of these names that you're to be Amazon proof basically, and dollar general certainly fits the bill. And, you know, that conclusion is kind of informed by the nature of the purchase decision. It's, it's people coming in after work to buy something for dinner that night, or it's also the, the size of the ticket is very low. It's you know, roughly $15 and, I think there was even a shout out in the Amazon shareholder letter this year that effectively admitted that you know, at a certain dollar price point, they're not going to be able to economically do kind of free shipping. And I would assume that applies more so in cities. But as you talk about rural areas, that becomes even more difficult, right? So I think there's certain aspects of this business that I'm really confident are sustainable. Cool. Do you think they're going to be able to continue to
1: grow store count at the levels they've been growing them at in recent years? like I know that they're talking about growing into Mexico. Do you think that will basically continue the, the trajectory that
0: they've been on? I think it's... My, my head always leans towards this has got to be near the end of the line, right? <laughs> I mean, if you think about any of these massive retailers, it always feels like the end has got to be coming soon, right? In DG's case, the, the rest trajectory for a very long period of time has been very impressive and I kind of trust them in terms of their analysis of what the white space is in the US. You know, as we look to international markets or different formats, I, I think it's a bit harder to say and I'm sure they would say the same too. It's a bit more experimental at this point. But to the extent they find you know the next leg of growth through through Mexico or or Pop Shelf, like, that would be obviously hugely supportive to the investment thesis.
1: I think they could even be a good business without growing store count anymore. Yeah. Like if they turn into like maybe a Home Depot kind of situation. Where the store count growth is stagnant, they can still, I think do very well as a stock through buybacks and leveraging some other things within the locations,
0: yeah. My original write-up that I sent to subscribers effectively looked at it through that framework, which is mm-hmm. this is if five years from now or eight years from now, you know kind of based on the kind of white space targets they gave, if that's the end of the line, how do we think about what this investment looks like, and you know what will the capital allocation strategy be? and And like yourself, I kind of came to the conclusion that I still feel comfortable that this investment can work well if that's the kind of how this plays out over the coming years. Now,
1: you recently wrote about a pretty similar business, which is Tractor Supply. I'm Long Tractor Supply. I think it's a great business for pretty similar reasons, but you're not Long Tractor Supply. So was that based on basically a comparison to Dollar General? Like you think Dollar General is the better business or uh, were there other considerations at work?
0: Yeah, I'd say the biggest one, honestly, is, and I kind of spoke to this earlier as well, this idea of just getting comfortable with the business and getting comfortable with the management team. And it's a newer name for me. And Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of things I like, and I'm envious of long-term shareholders like yourself based on... (laughs) I I just bought it last last year. So I'm not that Okay. Well, (laughs) yeah. If you look back at this business over the last 20 years, it's been astounding, the results that they've been, been able to achieve. So yeah, it usually takes me a while, even if I'm very interested in a company after kind of an initial look over, you know, writing a deep dive over the course of a couple of weeks, whatever it may be. I still typically tend to to want to take a little bit more time to see how the business does in real time to get a better feel for management, et cetera. So it kind of took out there, but it's a name that's very seriously on the watch list. I think it's a fascinating business. And yeah, it certainly rhymes with some of the DG story.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And so another position I want to talk to you about was Disney. So Disney's going through a pretty tough time. They've had the troubles with COVID. They seem to be struggling with streaming, making that profitable. So what's your take on Disney? I know you continue to hold it. How do you think they're going to evolve as a business?
0: Yeah, I think Disney's a very, very interesting example of what it means to actually, you know, live through one of these transitions in terms of a business model. And, you know, it's funny if you go back to when Disney Plus launched and, and consider where the subscriber base is at today or, you know, the revenue base, et cetera, I would assume it's it pretty well ahead of any kind of estimates that would be made at that time. Now, the reality is, as, as we've seen from Netflix's reported results over the past 10 years or so, there was always going to be a very real cost associated with making this transition. And the question was whether or not that cost was worth bearing in order to, mm-hmm. try to get to the other side. You know, I think as... The industry generally has become less willing to to bear these losses, partly as a reflection of market pressures. I think their ability to bear these costs, in my mind, is still manageable, and it helps to have the Parks business and you know the cash flows from kind of the legacy TV TV pieces. Their willingness to bear those risks is a bit less clear to me, and I think that will greatly impact the type of strategy that they pursue going forward. Whether it's you know kind of Moving back towards being a little bit more niche and focusing on the core IP, especially on the entertainment side, or if it's building out a more of an all-you-can-eat model that's kind of similar to Netflix. And you know, as it relates specifically to the U.S., I think that decision will impact how they think about the role of ESPN and the role of sports streaming as part of their you know 10-plus year-out strategy. How do they think about those things? And I think what they choose in the entertainment side will impact how they think about the and a live right side
1: that makes sense so why why can't they make streaming profitable so they seem to be neat closing in on netflix's total subscriber base with disney plus so why what's the issue there why can't they seem to do that
0: yeah i think part of it was i don't think it would be unfair to say that when they started seeing very significant subscriber gains they did start to operate more from the perspective of let's Let's scale this business. Let's get a lot of subscribers, drive engagement, and over time, obviously, increased penetration for the subscriber base, but also ARPU would lead this to a position where it's a very meaningful business. And I think their ability to go, hey, we'll be there in three years, has been that window has shrunk. And the market is more demanding on how you're going to get from A to B than they were 12 or 18 months ago. So I think the answer is they can get there through some combination of cost efficiency, through pushing higher ARPU's, through potentially continuing to grow the subscriber base. But there's also risks associated with kind of making these decisions too early and and cutting this business off before it's you know truly gotten off the ground. So I think they have a lot to think about in terms of what the strategic vision of the company is going forward.
1: I also want to ask you about Google.
0: So. You're
1: not long Google, but it seems like it would be your kind of business. So why are you not long Google? Is it AI? Is it is it some other consideration? Is it the uh, wasteful
0: spending? <laughs> Part of it is having this significant Microsoft position and thinking about, mm-hmm. you know, as, as I spoke to earlier, really diversification and thinking about their relative positions. And also Meta, which is somewhat uh, in the same spaces too, depending on what portion of Google business you're talking about. Google's always been... I've always struggled with Google a bit, you know, kind of the question of how will DG continue to build stores. I've always struggled with the question of how search continues to just tick off insane growth rates year after year after year. So that's always been a bit of a mental hurdle for me. I've always struggled with truly understanding kind, of, kind of the backend tech type of stuff and and how much regulatory risk was mm-hmm. actually. Re- I mean, it's been an ongoing discussion, obviously, for many years. I've never really got my arms around that. Yeah, the, the the stuff with other bets or even cloud, I it certainly seems that they're making good progress. I also think that AWS and Microsoft have very real advantages given you know first mover advantages and also Microsoft in terms of some of the enterprise sales and things like that. So I, I've struggled to think about that component of it all. So it's kind of just all those things coming together has always kind of kept me on the sideline, very impressed by the results they've delivered. I would not have Predicted five or 10 years ago how much they've continued to grow and something that remains interesting to me, but, but not something that I really seriously considered buying. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, if you if you have a position like you do in Meta and Microsoft, all those stocks do tend to move together. So you definitely don't want to get over-concentrated there. So that makes a lot of sense too. And you're right on the regulatory aspects of it. It hasn't been a problem so far, but I could absolutely see some future administration wanting to crack down on it.
0: Yeah I thought one really interesting example was when you know Match the dating app company mm-hmm. a significant payer of App Store fees when they sued Google I believe it was last year related to certain App Store rules type of thing and Google kind of responded publicly on a blog where they they effectively came directly at Match and I thought it was an interesting example of either the two conclusions that made sense to me were either one they they're feeling the heat a little bit, and they're getting a little more defensive. Or two, mm-hmm. they're just so confident in their position and their ability to keep weathering these storms, as you know, they as they have done so far. They're they're confident enough in that to kind of publicly trash another company, an important <laughs> company. So I think it's all very interesting. I don't really know how it plays out, but I'll I'll be curious to see
1: yeah another position I'm interested in is Markel. So Markel, I think it's a great business. It's almost it's been described as like a mini Berkshire. What are your thoughts
0: on Markel and its future? Yeah, I think it's you know when you step back and look at at their results and in insurance and investing over you know all the last twenty years, I think it's pretty clear just from the numbers and and taking away any references to Berkshire or whatever else that the results have been pretty attractive. Mm-hmm. They've shown an the ability to do well in the insurance businesses that they compete in. I think their investment track record has been pretty good, or not pretty good, very good. You know, I think even some of the chatter around the decisions that they made during the pandemic, the early days of the pandemic, selling equities, and I think some of the logic they gave and the subsequent results in insurance are supportive of kind of what they were saying at the time. I think that example kind of captures how I feel about them generally, which is I think I'm confident that they're trustworthy and I think they're capable and I think it's very early days adventure still. It's certainly changed in the last five years, you know, despite the fact that it, that it's been, it was created almost 20 years ago now with the, with the AMF bakery deal. I think it's really just now starting to get into kind of the potential of what it can be as they're more confident and they're finding larger deals to do. So I think it's, I can understand the the questions are, uh, the pushback that people give on Markel at times, but I think to the extent that they continue to be a very good underwriter, to the extent that they tend to be good ca- allocators of capital in terms of investment portfolio and, and ventures as well, I think it's a name that potentially pretty attractive returns and as importantly, for very long periods of time kind of core model. Yeah, with ventures, it's pretty interesting.
1: It does seem like they're moving towards really even more towards the Berkshire model where they're going to have some private businesses they own. And then on top of that, they're going to own a bunch of marketable securities and then fuel it all with float. So it's definitely the playbook that seems like they're pursuing.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I looked at, just to kind of get my head in the right uh, frame, I looked at Berkshire's 95 annual report to get a sense for you know like 20 25 years after they started doing kind of wholly owned businesses what did it look like Mm -hmm. what you see when you go back and look is newspapers handy home cleaning or the term be like vacuum cleaners (laughs) and things like that like it's just funny to think you were in that position looking at berkshire you might say you know some of these businesses are you know whatever they're maybe not the most interesting things in the world and then you fast forward to today and those businesses, I'd be surprised if any of them are more than all one or two percent of Berkshire's wholly mm-hmm. owned business revenues. And just thinking about building the, to the extent you think someone's capable and trustworthy, kind of building the knowledge base and building the relationships and getting into a position where you can actually potentially do this quite well. I just think it took them a while to get to where they are today, and there may not have been any other way to get from A to B. But I'm I'm pretty confident that they can. And use the learnings over the last, you know, almost two decades to actually put this business in a kind of new area.
1: Yeah. And Tom Gaynor, he seems like an exceptional manager. Every interview I've listened to him on, I've always been super impressed with him. So it seems like you're definitely in good hands on a
0: management front. Yeah. yeah, I think that I don't have many knocks against him. I think sometimes if everybody's put on the yardstick of, of Buffett and Munger, you're not going to find too many people that pass the <laughs> test. So yeah, there's I, no think, one. <laughs> I think by most subjective measures, he I'm confident with him being the CEO of the company. All right. So before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add? I don't think so. I greatly appreciate you having me. And I always love talking about individual names. It's been a good time.
1: And uh, what are the best places for people to reach out to you?
0: Yeah, the best place to find me is uh, com, where you can see my research service and you can email me. Or if you want to go on Twitter, you can at TSOH underscore investing. You can always DM me or reach out to me. Always happy to talk. Well, thank you for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.